We, uh, we're taking this word trespass to, and we're thinking of it in a bunch of ways. Uh, one, the ways in which we trespass into the lives of others to make our work. The ways we trespass across boundaries and definitions in doing that work. Are we reporters or artists, historians, activists, investigators, some of one and some of the other, some simultaneously or contradictorily? And also the way we're trespassing across boundaries of media here as nonfiction workers, uh, uh, we are learning, I think, more to talk to each other, photographers talking to radio producers. And uh, I'm particularly interested in this idea as the Internet kind of brings us all together. And I learn so much when I hear a filmmaker talk about their challenges and make the translation of the kind of work we do. Um, I started work as a documentarian in radio 25 years ago, and I just I went out and talked to people, and uh, <clears throat> I think at first I used them. Uh, because I didn't really, I hadn't developed any sense of what I was doing. It was like going fishing. And uh, I, their lives became my raw material, and I would just cut it up and make something interesting about, uh, out of it and, and slowly realized that there was a much greater responsibility than I had idly thought in, in, in my early 20s. Uh, and since then, I've been moving more and more toward handing out skills to others and trying to help people trespass into their own lives. And uh, I send out tape recorders. I've got lots and lots of tape recorders that I get off eBay and um, give them to people and try to create, you know, give them the skills to, uh, to, to make stories. But this is what we do at Transom. It's what I did with the series Life Stories. And uh, <clears throat> we did it with Lost and Found Sound uh, by inviting people to give us their stories. To, to self-document because, uh, you know, you realize that you're asking people to tell you their, their secrets or their best parts or their worst parts. And then that's what you, that's the, that's what you have an obligation, uh, to deal with in some responsible way. Uh, I, uh, one other thing I would say before I introduce this panel, which is a really terrific panel, um, is the other thing that the other way I kind of measure this notion of trespass is occasionally uh, by doing a, a self-portrait, because as much as I have to ask other people to tell me their most important things about themselves, I think it's occasionally important to do it yourself. And so, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I did a piece for This American Life about my life, about my house, why my kids are in it, and. I had to think about what I'm willing to say and what it's like to say it and what the after effects are of having said it. And if, you, and if I don't do that, I'm afraid I lose touch with what it is I'm asking other people to do. And uh, so that's been an important kind of a yardstick for me is to occasionally make myself trespass against myself or inside myself. Um, and uh, with that, I want to go to... Uh, Elizabeth Barrett, who has made a film, which we're going to show the first little bit of it, because I think it just sets up this issue absolutely perfectly. And she made the, the film a couple years ago, uh, where she lives in Kentucky, and now is traveling around with the film to show it to media makers to really discuss a lot of these issues. And Elizabeth, I think it's interesting to note, started this, started working in this field 
in Apple Shop, if you know Apple Shop, which simply requires that you live there and then they'll tell you how to get the skills, when she was 21 and, uh, and has made this movie, which I think you'll find very interesting as a way to start this discussion before we get to Lee Allen and Joel uh, after that. So Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Um, yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Good morning, everybody. We, um, last year, uh, Julie Shapiro from the festival got in touch with me to come bring Stranger with a Camera and uh, really more around the idea of uh, using audio in uh, film and video and, um, and really more around the notion of storytelling. And then I couldn't come last year, uh, so I was very pleased that she got back in touch with me, she and Johanna, this year uh, with this new idea, which the film uh, perfectly meshed with, too, uh, with Jay and the uh, notion of trespassing. So this, uh, the title of the documentary, um, the newest one I've done, it's called Stranger with a Camera. And... Um, I know some people have seen, it's a one-hour documentary. Uh, I know a number of people have seen the whole thing. I've been meeting people here at the conference that um, have seen, have, you know, taken a look at it since it's been uh, shown around and on um, POV, the PBS series and things like that. So um, it's, so for people who haven't seen it, of course, it's hard for me to not show the entire thing. You know, I know we're going to show like about five minutes, which is, I guess, long for uh an audio piece, but the entire documentary is one hour, and so uh, it's kind of painful for me to, to just like show a little bit, but so bear with me. But um, uh, I just want to give you a little, uh, you know, short scenario. Uh, the, the film deals with issues of media representation um, by um, revisiting a very dramatic um, um, encounter in Kentucky that took place in 1967. Um, in the area where I live and where I grew up. And um, a filmmaker who was a Canadian uh, working with a New York production company, uh, he came to Kentucky uh, working on a big exhibition film, um, and he was shot and killed by a local resident. And, um, and so for me, it, it happened when I was in high school, and, um, and I was just in the next county over, and I began to hear about, you know, that it happened, but it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And then over time, as Jay said, um, as I was, you know, I went um, finishing college in Kentucky, then I joined this film workshop that was 30 miles from my home, and I began to learn filmmaking and um, going out in the community to do documentaries. And, uh, and we were constantly uh, reminded of this um, murder that had happened in this county where we were living and working. And, um, um, and it was a cautionary tale, I think, by people in the community who, who held the story in the community memory and were, it served a lot of purposes to tell us as people who were 21. And so um, um, just kind of what was at stake, I think. And uh, so eventually I got around to, um, to, after many, many years, I was able to begin to make Stranger with a Camera. And so all these notions of trespassing are really um, relevant. Um, as somebody from within the community who is doing uh, work about the community. So um, just quickly, I was going to tell you a little bit of who we're going to see in here um, because there's just some, uh, this is, you know, kind of the intro of the film. Um, there's um, Hugh O'Connor, who was the filmmaker. Um, uh, these are just the, you know, kind of main characters here in this little part. Hugh O'Connor, who was the filmmaker who was killed. Um, Hobart Ison is the uh, man who did the shooting. 
Um, there's also uh, a relative of Hobart's in this clip, uh, moose breeding. There's um, Mason Eldridge. He's a retired miner that was filmed by Hugh O'Connor and his crew. Um, and there's uh, Calvin Trillin, who's reading um, an excerpt of an um, article that he published in The New Yorker uh, back in 1969. Uh, so it was right after the murder. Um, and so he's reading an excerpt of his work. Um, and then Harry and Ann Caudill, uh, who are local residents, and then um, the publisher of the Mountain Eagle, which is uh, our weekly newspaper, a very pioneer, pioneering, uh, interesting kind of weekly paper in Whitesburg, Kentucky. And then also I'm a character in the film, um, which um, was a new thing for me to try um, to um, put myself in one of my documentaries. So um, I think we'll just get right into showing it. And, uh, um, and basically I think what we're planning to do is, is really hold questions and, and much of the discussion um, sort of after each one of us has presented a bit. Yeah. So thank you. Come in from work one evening. Sitting on the porch and hadn't had the baby in my lap. And there was a that Hugh Corners or another man wanted to come around wanting to take take the picture. And I give him a permission for it. So he went back to the camera and started taking the pictures. They were over in this area here taking the pictures from the people that was in the house over here. There was houses all up and down through this spot at that time. Hobart Ison was coming up the road at a 49 Buick, and he seen them taking those pictures of his renters. And he came up the road right here and pulled in. He got out of the car right there and came over to where they was at. It all happened awfully fast. A man drives up, opens the door of a car, takes a few steps, screams at us, shoots a gun off. Mr. O'Connor briefly looked down in amazement and saw a hole in his chest. And he looked up in despair and said, Why did you have to do that? 
and with blood coming from his mouth, he fell to the ground. Well, he, he had, 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 had to be murdered. Had to be. the mountains I come from in eastern Kentucky. The killing that happened here had a lasting effect on the lives of everyone who lived through it, and now that includes me. I've passed this place in the road many times in my work as a filmmaker, documenting life here. Over the years, I learned what had happened but I wanted to go beneath the surface to find out why it happened. I wanted to explore this incident that reflects a dark side of where I live. What brought these two men, Hobart Ison with his gun and Hugh O'Connor with his camera, face to face in September of 1967? To Hobart Ison, Hugh O'Connor was a stranger with a camera. Here in this place, I became a neighbor, a wife, and mother with a camera. As a filmmaker, I felt that O'Connor's death and my community's response to it had something to teach me. As someone who lives in the community I document, what can I learn from this story now that I have stood on both sides of the camera? I grew up in a place inundated with picture takers of the creeks, the hollows, the houses, and the people of Appalachia. I didn't think much about it back then. After all, what did those images have to do with me? I have left the land of bondage with its earthly treasures. I've journeyed to a place where there is love on every hand. Exchanged... What is the difference between how people see their own place? and how others represent it. Who does get to tell the community's story? And what are the storytellers' responsibilities? And what do these questions have to do with the murder that happened here? My parents moved to Hazard, Kentucky after World War II. I was born here in 1951. When I was growing up and saw Appalachia on national television, 
the images were of mining disasters, coal strikes, or poor people. A friend of my dad's, a local lawyer, started speaking out about problems in the area. A British film crew came into Letcher County to make a documentary about him. Harry Cordell's an attorney. He lives with his wife and three children at Whitesburg in eastern Kentucky, the center of America's poverty belt. Only recently has America woken up. Thanks. Get the light. So, um, you know, as I go in the film, I continue to use this footage from um, this era of the 1960s. So it wasn't just the BBC that um, came to this little bitty town, Whitesburg, Kentucky, and Letcher County. It uh, was ABC and CBS and uh, NBC. And um, so, so in the film, I just um, am continuing to kind of uh, look at this history of representation that um, this filmmaker who came to Kentucky was following in the, uh, in the footsteps of a lot of other uh, makers and photographers and journalists who had been there before. And, um, and he paid, you know, dearly for, uh, he paid with his life, really, for this history of representation. And, um, and so, so the film really begins to go into a whole kind of reflection and meditation of what are we doing as media makers. Um, uh, what are we? Um, what, are, what is this relationship between uh, the people who are filmed um, and the filmer? And what is the consequences um, of our work? And so I think for you know everybody in the room that um, is beginning to do this kind of documentary work, whether it's in uh, uh, still photographs or audio or uh, writing or filmmaking. Uh, that we all face these um, issues that, that I am exploring in Stranger with a Camera. That it, it gave me this opportunity. It was a very extreme example of, um, of, of this clash and uh, of where things went terribly wrong. And, um, and so that's, um, you know, essentially what I'm kind of grappling with in this film. And maybe to leave you hanging, we'll leave some of those answers and conclusions uh, for the last part of this. And now we'll uh, hear from Lee Allen, who I think many of you know in many ways sort of set a standard for documenting one's own life uh, uh, in Ghetto Life 101 and then the stories of Eric Morse. And, uh, and now uh, Lee Allen's freelancing now, and, and he's uh, actually going this afternoon to start recording a rap album. And... Um, <laughs> And he's also been playing at another boundary, which is the boundary of documentary and fiction, because <clears throat> the story of Lee Allen documenting his own life then was fictionalized so that there's a pretend Lee Allen documenting his pretend real life. So uh, he's got a little bit of both to show us. So Lee Allen Jones. How's everybody doing this morning? I want to say, first of all, thank you uh, to the people at WBZ and the Third Coast Festival for allowing me to come here and present my work, uh, as well as thanking uh, the people I see in the audience from Sound Porch Productions, which was uh, the company that uh, produced our work. I know Dave Isaiah is in here, uh, but he sent his people that work with him, and I want to say thank you for them coming, as well as to this group over here, uh, Radio Rookies uh, out of New York. <laughs> 
I'm like a politician. Anytime you give me something to wear, I put it on immediately. So I have on the Radio Rookies T-shirt now. Uh, interestingly enough, I think I would say I would think a lot of you have heard the radio documentaries that me and Lloyd Newman did in 1993, Ghetto Life 101, and Remorse to 14 Stories, Very Remorse. Two pieces that were really original in a sense, not just from the standpoint of the topics that they talked about, but from the standpoint of having two young people giving them the ability to go in and document those stories and not trying to uh, uh, contrive anything, but allowing us to really tell the story. But in the end, that's where the controversy came because I guess we articulated the story so well that people could only uh, combat the story's truthfulness with the falsehoodness that we were, we were uh, duped into doing it. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I can't really sit up here and share that I'm an expert on doing uh, documentary work. I mean, it'd uh, be very wrong for me to do that. I had the opportunity to do those works. But what I can say is in looking at what we did with those documentaries, Ghetto Life 101 and Remorse to 14 Stories, and looking at it back as a 23-year-old in science and idea of what Dave, I say, uh, wanted to do and what he envisioned in doing and what he ended up accomplishing was that he brought to the table people that ordinarily wouldn't have a voice on such a very large topic, one being uh, poverty in the inner city, uh, one being youth violence, and being, allowing those who were the most affected by it to tell their stories. And I think that that is what allowed it to be a very unique piece and still to this day has allowed it, the piece not to depreciate but have an appreciation value. I mean, I've, uh, I'm doing work in the public schools here in Chicago and just all around the country. I get emails from people who have just heard the radio documentaries, who don't know a thing about the book, who don't know a thing about the movie, but have just heard the radio documentaries there and they've been riveted by it. Uh, I had a kid last year email me from, uh, from England, and he stayed in one of the housing projects there, and he just said that the radio documentary had did so many things for him, and it's just, it's just hard to imagine that something that you can do, as just, far as just documenting and telling your story, could have such a profound effect many years after it was done and still present people with, what, present people with a lot of questions to, to things that need very serious answers. Uh, so what I've done here today is that I've, I, and I'm, I'm going to play uh, the audio portion of Remorse to 14 Stories for you guys that haven't heard it. Uh, it's, it's, it should be new to you for you guys that have. Just listen to it again. And then uh, what we're going to do is go to the, uh, the depiction of how it was characterized in film uh, on, when it aired on Showtime in July. And we'll just go to those scenes, and then I'll follow up uh, with a little bit more comments, and then I'll leave time for my counterpart here, Mr. Meyerwitz. So thank you. And Lloyd, day one, we want to find out about Eric Morris' story. Mm -hmm. On the road again. This is Lloyd Noon, and I'm in the 10th grade at Phillips High School. And this is Lee Allen Jones, and I'm in the 11th grade at King High School. Back on the scene at the Ida B. Wells Housing Development. One abandoned building, two abandoned building, three abandoned building, four. With a tape recorder and microphone. Looking at sounds of the ghetto. Rap, man. Walking around the neighborhood with our equipment. Everyone figured we must be rap singers. No, I ain't what I'm saying. I'm, I'm a reporter. What y'all doing that for? Talking about Eric Morris, little boy that got through out the window over there. All right. I'm not a singer. Thursday, October 13, 1994. Eric Morris, five years old, was dropped out of a 14-story window by two other boys because Eric wouldn't steal candy for them. 
They were just 10 and 11 years old. It happened in my backyard. I can see the building from my house. It was big news here in Chicago. Topping our news, tragedy at a Southside housing project. Cops say late a last five-year-old night... five-year-old boy refused to steal candy, so he was pushed. A short life, a tragic death for five-year-old Eric Moore. Neighbors say it was a horrifying The cycle of kids killing kids seems to be escalating out of control. Just when you thought you'd seen it all when it comes to juveniles and crime here in Chicago, now comes this... Two boys, People all over pointed to Eric's death as a symbol of everything that's gone wrong with the neighborhood like ours. Even the president got into that. What do you think about those two kids, 10 and 11 years old in Chicago, that threw that five-year-old boy out the window? A five-year-old kid who knew right from wrong lost his life at the age of five because he wouldn't steal candy. Because he knew right from wrong. The whole country was shocked by the incident, at least for a week or two. But then the cameras and the reporters left, and we were all still here, left to ponder another war story in the hood, the lost lie, the spreading violence. For kids growing up in this neighborhood, it was nothing new, and it wasn't surprising. I know lots and lots of people that's been killed, just part of day-to-day -day life in the Ida B. Will. But this time, we decided to take a closer look at the incident, to talk to people involved, the neighbors, friends and families of Eric Morse and the two little boys that killed him. For a year, we Allen and I traveled our hood, looking into the murder of Eric Morse. We call our documentary, Remorse. That was the audio. This is the, uh, the visual part that was on Showtime over the summer. He's got to turn it on. Oh, you got to turn it on. Let me rewind it for you. That's my cue up. <laughs> that was Josh Charles who played Dave, I say. <laughs> that's Lee Allen, that's Lloyd. This is the incident that happened right here that they depicted. The audio, I gotta turn it up. Just when you thought you'd seen it all when it comes to juveniles and crime here in Chicago, a five-year-old boy, Eric Morse, was thrown from a 14th-floor window last night. A five-year-old boy was thrown from a 14th-floor window tonight by two boys aged 10 and 11. Police are continuing. Where a five-year-old boy was pushed from a 14th-floor window tonight by two other boys aged 10 and 11. A short life, a tragic death for five-year-old Eric Morse. The reporters wrote in, they made their speeches, and they wrote out again. Don't even know what happened. You expect them to find out? No, because they don't care. But we do. This is a national story. It happened in our neighborhood. Who can tell better than us? Did you forget what happened the last time? Miss Williams? Graham Ellis? I don't, I don't even care about them. You did then? You still did six months ago? I was wrong. You said so yourself. So now you want to prove we really did the first one? <laughs> no, man. That's, that's not it. I'm tired of them trying to make us out to be some, some useless murdering motherfuckers. Man, ain't gonna change that. We gotta try. Why else did we do all this? Why else did we learn to be reporters if we ain't gonna report? They won't do it either. We'll talk to him. And if he's in, then you're in too. Capiche? Are you crazy? Man, what I tell you? This is not just you guys talking into a mic. You'd have to bang down doors, find sources, get people to talk. We can do that. What about school? 
sure you need the extra work? This is something that we both need, Dave. Why? Prove you did the first one? No. It's not about that. It's about that little baby. It's about why things like this always happen around here. What's wrong with proving you did the first one? Are you crazy? What did Beckett say about failing? Try again, fail again, fail better? You didn't fail. We all hate the way it ended, Gare. This gives us a chance to do it right if we can get these guys to give us another shot. I want to know why you want to do this. I owe it to Leon and Lloyd. Oh, come on. Gary Cavino. You stay closer to those kids than any journalist ever did to a subject. What's it going to do to you if they don't make it? They'll make it. Lee Allen probably will. But Lloyd, man, he is always in trouble. What if he doesn't? I'm not going to let that happen. How are you going to stop it? For one thing, I'm going to get your ass to help us make another documentary. <laughs> yeah, fine, fine. I'll talk to Pax later. You're the man. Yes, I am. This is Lloyd Newman and Lee Allen Jones back on the scene at the Ida B. Wells housing development. Every Canada, in the neighborhood had heard the story of how Eric Morris was killed. Two older boys, Johnny and Tyrone, tried to get Eric to steal candy for him. Eric told Tyrone's mother, and he got in trouble. He and Johnny decided to seek revenge on Eric and his brother. We decided to check out the scene of the crime. Stairs are dark. Bricks from urine, from vomit, and dog shit. If it is dog. Man, it's dark up there. Hell yeah. Come on, boo, let's go. Finally, some light. gotten in the same way. from all the way up here? I mean, so you get to see the idea of 
when we originally did the documentary, I'm not going to lie to you and sit here and tell you that we thought we were working on something that was going to be able to create as, create as much uh, dialogue as it did. Initially, I just saw it as being a very interesting story that I wanted to tell based upon the summer, the summer before that in 94, Yummy Sander, if anybody here remembers that story about uh, the kid that was going up in Roseland who was shot, was executed by two other kids that were uh, 13 or 14 years old that did it, and then this story it came up, and I thought that, like we said in the piece, that you can't, traditionally when you look at big news people, you know, they go in and they tell stories, and they, and they don't really go in and they don't really try to grow roots with them. So what we did in Remorse is that, first of all, we lived in the neighborhood, so therefore we had to be as true to the story, not just based on just personal conviction, but because we lived there, and you, and you want to be able to maybe make people understand that aspect you're living in, not maybe want them to be sympathetic or maybe want them to be harsh, but to understand the realities of it. So in doing uh, Remorse, after we did Ghetto Life, you heard from the controversial elements that we have from Ghetto Life, it also gave uh, credence to that Ghetto Life 21 was valid and had good reasoning. No problem. Everybody hear me now? Hello? Hello? Like the Verizon Wireless man, hear me now? Uh, <laughs> But nonetheless, like I said before, that we, when we did the documentary, we thought that it had a, that it had a lot that needed to be told from it, and it was a great spinoff from uh, Ghetto Life. So uh, I'm going to now pass it over to Mr. Meyerwitz, who has a great uh, montage of photographs from September 11th. Uh, thank Thanks a lot, Lee Allen. Yeah. Okay, I, uh, one thing that's interesting, I think, is this notion of people whose lives are being documented by out outsiders who feel as if the outsiders don't understand them and aren't telling the truth and that they aren't represented and they take the tools themselves and tell their own stories. And I think in some ways that's what public broadcasting uh, can serve to do. And I think in some ways it's what, what the Internet is doing now, is allowing people to speak their own truth, to speak plainly, to talk in the way they uh, they know and believe to be true rather than having their stories told for them in uh, insipid or uh, unfair or pablum-like ways through mainstream media. So this is, I think, it's one of the things that we do here is try to figure out how to, how to tell a different truth and, uh, and to change the dynamic of trespassing. Uh, Joel is uh, Joel's a you know a, a wonderful photographer. I, I, I know him because I live on Cape Cod, and I don't know if you've seen his books about. It's not quite trespassing. It's more with th those books. It's more residence than trespass, and uh, and he's helped our radio stations by giving us images t uh, to, to give away to uh, uh, donors. Uh, Joel's spent his last year, though, trespassing, and, and that's what he'll be talking about now. He'll be making a book from this work. You're probably familiar with it. It's, it's, uh, and uh, he's also got a retrospective of his work coming up. He's here in Chicago, and it's going to be starting at the Art Institute of Chicago, a full res retrospective of Joel's work. Uh, and uh, I think he'll be able to talk about the uh, necessity of trespassing. Joel Meyerowitz. Good morning, everybody. Thanks, Jay, Elizabeth, Lee Allen. Very powerful works in, uh, in such a short vignette. One could feel it. Oddly enough, my wife, who's a writer, wrote a story about those boys falling. And most of the story takes place in the stairwell as one of the brothers races down, thinking he might 
somehow catch his fallen brother. And the way she described those stairs is in your film. It's the, the, the crazy environment of it. So I want to tell you a little bit about what happened to me this past year because it's a lesson in consciousness, I think, both personal consciousness and social consciousness. And it has a lot to do with your world of um, reportage in some way. After the buildings fell, I was not in New York during that time. I came back, and as a New Yorker, I immediately felt I had to do something to help. And I went down to the site five days afterwards. Standing outside the perimeter of the site, I raised my camera just to look through it to see what was visible. Because the site was already cyclone fenced off and covered in tarpaulins, there was really nothing to see. But when I raised my camera, a life-transforming event occurred. A police officer wrapped me on the shoulder and said, no photographs, this is a crime scene. She didn't have to hit me. She could have just said something, but instead she poked me. And responding to that, I argued for why not take photographs? Why can't I? I'm just a, I'm just a citizen here on the streets, and you have no right to tell me no. After threatening to take my camera away, I continued my argument and said, suppose I was the press, then what? And she pointed behind her to the press corps, your surrogates in some way, and they were tied up with yellow police tape, maybe a dozen of them with microphones and video cameras. And I said to her, when are they going to go in? And she said, probably never. This is a crime scene. And as I left that scene, I thought, they can't do that to us. They can't make this place off limits. Someone needs to go in there and make a document, a historical archive. And for some reason, I felt like it was my responsibility. I had written a history book with a friend here in Chicago years ago, and we had spent many months in archives all over the world, and I saw what an archive looked like, and I thought, I know how to do this now. And that poke in the shoulder, that consciousness-raising moment changed my life. I decided I would find my way in. And although I convinced the museum director to give me a letter, the letter wasn't really useful because the cops don't read. Show them the letter and they know it's a scam and you're just trying to hustle your way in, make a profit on some pictures. So I was able to get a pass, a little pink pass, a worker's pass, uh, from a friend of mine in the Parks Department. The combination of the pass and the letter allowed me to kind of finagle my way through the first line of resistance. I was thrown out every single day that I was there in the first few weeks. But I would come back in because I just didn't want them to take this record away from us. And it was that persistence that helped me to endure because I felt, as exciting as it was to be inside, I felt it was just as exciting to resist the bureaucracy. So. The story be begins there. Let me show you a few images that will uh, help explain it. 
Okay, can we have the lights down, please? I went in with a, an old-fashioned wooden view camera. I wanted to make images that were precisely described so that people in the future could be sitting at a console, a computer, look at the prints, at an exhibition, something, and be able to study it themselves as if they were there. Part of what was so profound and experienced down there was that these piles of rubble, the compressed residue of 110 stories of structure, wound up being eight or 10 stories of steel and I-beams and wiring and tables. There was no stone or concrete left. It was all dust and this pile. And it put one inside it in a very visceral way. When I was preparing to make the picture I just showed you, I had to keep backing up to get to a right place for it. And when I backed up far enough, I actually backed into these men, not in this photograph, but they were seated in chairs around the edge of the site. They were all detectives from the arson explosion squad. Normally, any cop on the site seeing me with a camera would have thrown me out. These guys, for some reason, the way I backed into them and the kind of joke I made of it, a tactic of my, my father's, I believe, I, uh, I was able to explain to them what I was doing. And these guys took it on themselves to protect me. They countermanded the, uh, the edict passed down by the police commissioner and the mayor. On their own, they decided that I deserve to be in there. So I guess one of the first laws of trespassing, in a situation like this anyway, is after you get in, make friends. It's like the foot soldier in the war zone. You have to learn how to get around in this territory and be protected. So for the first 50 days that I was in there, I had their cell numbers on my cell phone. And any time I was stopped by National Guardsmen, state troopers, New York City policemen, FBI agents, Port Authority cops, anybody who felt that they had a right to say, hey, buddy, no photographs, I would call these guys up and they would either ream them out over the phone and own me, or they would come and get me in one of their little vehicles. So I thank them because without their um, shield, their protection, I wouldn't have been able to stay in and probably would have given up at some point. In fact, the first night that I met them, they, they carried my equipment up to the top of this building so that I could make these photographs. They, they were my allies in the sense that they said, oh, you've got to see this. This is an incredible place. Come with us. And it was like that all the time that they were down there. They would always give me a heads up on a, on a new cave that had been opened up or a new entrance to a mall or a building that was now possible to enter. This has a story of its own about trespassing. 
I was photographing. This is a Sunday early in October. It was a beautiful, sun-warm day. It felt good to be alive until you remembered where you were. I was photographing, and suddenly two cops come over and say, you got to leave right now. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm working here. here. Here's my pass. Here's my letter. Read this letter. And they said, no, Chief Fellini wants you out of here. I said, well, who's Chief Fellini? He said, well, he's, he runs the show today. He's the fire chief on, on duty. I said, well, can I talk to Chief Fellini? He said, nope, doesn't want you here. You got to go. I said, come on, let me explain to him what I'm doing. He'll understand. You know, he'll let me photograph. He said, nope, you got to go right now. So I lied to them. And I said, well, my car is over there, pointing to the south. And I said, I'm going to go that way. And he said, yeah, but no more photographs. I walk about 100 yards, and this is what I see. So I set up my camera. I'm just about to go under the dark hood, and the car pulls up, and two firemen get out, and they say, what are you doing? I said, I'm photographing. I was just over with Chief Fellini. He said, oh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> I didn't lie. I was over near Chief Fellini, but I realized that that was my leverage for that day. So for the rest of the day, Wherever I went, when someone stopped me, I would say, uh, Chief, uh, Chief Fellini. It's like the magic word. <laughs> From that time on, every day I went in, I would ask the first cops I saw, uh, who's on today? You know, Chief Esposito, you know, Chief Mancini. I mean, everybody, they, and they were both fire and police chiefs. So I would collect the data. And then wherever I went, I would say, well, you know, I was just in the office over there with Chief Fellini in the trailer. It's, again, one aspect of how you stay alive in a situation that's constantly changing and where authority is never um, constant, right, they, because it's a daily thing. This is the, the plaza of the World Trade Center, which collapsed. My, my angels, those guys from the force, they're, they're in there somewhere, so I could always go where they were. So one night, again, another asset here about staying in, one night I see 30 or 40 men running up over this steel pile. Imagine running into this. This is uh, like running into the blade of a blender. And I follow them down into this pit, and that's what I see. And they have found five bodies inside a stairwell. So I go down to photograph, and suddenly some Fireman comes over and says, you can't photograph here. You're not one of us. And I said, well, are there any of your photographers here? He said, no. I said, so? I, now I'm one of you. I'm, I'm making these pictures. It's for history. It's for your record. The guy said, you have to get out of here right now. So I walk back up the hill, and I see a fire chief, not Chief Fellini. And I say to this guy, take a look at what's in front of you. This is an amazing moment. And if I don't record this, it's gone. No one knows what's been going on here. I said, you must let me stay here. You seem to be in charge. The guy took this look at me. We were about the same age, so at least it was reasonable, you know. And he, he took me with his paw <laughs> by, by his hand and took me all the way back down and announced to everybody, this guy stays. But you have to, in some way, identify your reason for being the necessity of your work. Um, the poor guy in Kentucky didn't have a chance. You know, He was killed before he had 
that, that opportunity to share his ideas and, and sympathies. But when you do have an idea of what you're doing and its value, I think it's important to communicate it. And it's also, at least in, in my experience as a photographer, I mean, you're dealing with sound. All of you can talk about things and, and share it that way. Photography is mute. You know, they don't know what you're doing, and, and it's stealthy looking. Uh, I passed these guys sitting here. They could have been Civil War soldiers in front of a tent. That was the, the impression I had. And although half of them were, you know, um, sort of oblivious to my being there, one guy obviously didn't want me there. But it didn't matter to me. I had to stand my ground and stare him down and make the picture because I, in some sense, knew better. I knew the worth of it. And I'm not going to let somebody send me away. I think that kind of determination is important, too, to continue with your process so that nobody deters you. Just a brief note about this, too. This was a memorial service, and um, there were 9,000 family members there, and, and uh, there was a barricade keeping one out of the pile so he wouldn't be hurt. And after it was over, people began to give the few firemen behind the barricade some objects to place in there. And I was on the other side of the barricade with them and had the opportunity to walk with them in their dirge-like procession as they place these objects with such reverence and devotion that it, it, it brought me to tears as I walked with him. This is Eddie. Just got out of jail, and he's working because the family gave him a job, and he talks like this down here. And uh, Eddie was in the insurance adjusting business, so he said, Deep in the photograph here, past the red object, in the center of the photograph is a tiny figure. He's playing taps. He was a New York musician, and he wanted to come down one night and offer taps to the dead. And he convinced some cops to take him in. Kind of trespassing also, but he, he offered it out of the genuine emotions that he had, that he wanted to honor the dead. So if you find a good excuse, you can probably do anything. Trespassing allowed me to also see $11 million collected in these bags, all cash, too. And believe me, my project was unfunded, and I saw those $11 million in cash, yen and lira and you know, rupees and the like, and I thought, hmm, maybe. One of them did fall off the truck as they drove away, but I, I did help them get it back on. And that's just uh, a moment down there. Uh, I would like to say one thing while I'm up here is that when I started to do this, I would come back to the studio at night filled with the excitement of the challenge and the resistance and the whole experience in the place. And my studio manager, Susan Jenkins, would listen to me tell these stories. And she said, you know, someone should record you. And so she started to record me. She's not involved in radio, or then wasn't. But since then, she found a way to get in also and record the workers down there. And through the good-heartedness of Jay Allison, she was able to have her first piece on uh, National Public Radio. So 
she was changed by this experience too. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Susan. She's here, uh, and you can uh, hear that piece on the Transom site, and she has many interesting things to say about having done a, a similar task to Joel's but with a tape recorder, and also the first time picking up a tape recorder to do that. Uh, your reason for being there, the importance of being there, uh, I, we've got a few plants in the audience. We're going to start some questions. We've got some trespassers here, and I've asked them to uh, uh, come forward. Uh, Lawrence Weschler, the great New Yorker writer. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't know why he's here, but he's here. <laughs> thank you. Well, I, I'm, I'm figuring out why I'm here. Uh, thank all of you. It's really quite 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 moving, um, and all of you are engaged in some pretty amazing stuff. Um, a question I wanted to ask you uh, has to do with coming out from the trespassing experience. I mean, there's two different aspects. There's the going in, where you're trespassing, and then there's what you bring out. And I'm reminded, uh, back in college, I used to, I went through a period where I was uh, obsessed with the history of monasteries for no reason I can remember. Um, but the great uh, Benedictine order in, uh, was founded by St. Benedict, and he had his code for the monks. And he said that the greatest um, virtue of a monk was discretion. And at the time, I began to think about that a lot and uh, ended up talking with a, a wonderful professor who talked about discretion, and he said that to understand what discretion is, is you have to go to the Latin root of the word, which is discretio, uh, which is excretio, is excretion, it's, it's shit. And discretion is basically knowing the difference between shit and food, and knowing that you don't eat shit. But that actually shit has a purpose too, as manure, and, and I mean the whole kind of sense of, of knowing what what can be told, what shouldn't be told, and so forth is, is important. I used to think about that a lot. And actually, it's funny, thinking just now as I'm telling you this story, I, I, um, I had a friend, uh, a, a woman who, uh, uh, she, she was married, a uh, faculty wife, and, and, she had, uh, and she had four kids and this wonderful husband. I thought they were the most wonderful family in the world. I was, you know, 19 years old. and. And suddenly one morning her husband shows up uh, in one of the dorm rooms of one of the graduate students and, and their marriage erupts and explodes and they end up divorced and uh, I remain friends with, with Candy. And one day she was saying, why are you reading all this mo mo monastery crap? What's that all about? And I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of interested in uh, the notion of life vows, you know, and how, how you can make a vow one day that is every morning renewed authentically, not just because you made the vow, but you know, in good faith. And, and she said, why do you care about that? I said, well, it seems to me like it might be a, a metaphor for marriage in some way, and that you're thinking about that. And she just cracked up laughing and said, oh, you don't get it at all. Monks have it easy. They're just one person. A marriage consists of two people. Uh, 
Discretion is easy to say by yourself if you're a monk, much, much more complicated in a social situation when you're a journalist, when you go into these things. Uh, it strikes me that all three of you are, are, are dealing with people's lives and more specifically people's deaths. And, and uh, I'm just curious, I mean, there, there, we, we can do chop talk about what it is to trespass to get into the thing. There's all kinds of interesting ideas of how to do it, you know, uh, the chief Fellini strategy and so forth. But, but then you've got the stuff. Um, and what responsibility do you have to what is, after all, basically radioactive material? Um, what, what is the place of discretion in, in, in coming out of a situation of trespass? Anybody? Yeah. Well, um, you know, just what you hit upon for me, it's, uh, it's very much at the heart of what I do this, that uh, I do have this um, as a community member, uh, as a regional filmmaker, I have uh, a sort of vow to my community. Um, and so in making Stranger with a Camera, it was, uh, you know, I had a lot of... Um, responsibilities I felt to the subject of the of the film to the, the themes and the subject of of this piece um, and I had a responsibility to to the truth of the story and and you know going for a really high degree of sort of historical accuracy in the piece and uh, yet I wanted it to be able to include um, multiple points of view and so I also had a responsibility to the participants in the film to everybody I, I interviewed. Um, I also had, had um, a real responsibility, um, you know, to myself and to be able to stand behind this work. And, um, and so for me, I think th these kinds of, um, uh, you know, consequences that because what I do is really place-based, that um, the consequences are, you know, forever, and you know the consequences of what you've done, uh, what you've made. Um, over time, you see the impact on on people. So, so for me, it, it is a very long term thing that I'm staying in one place, you know, my whole life really making films about this place, and so it's, um, you know, I'm I'm living the consequences and constantly reminded of the consequences um, of of creating documentaries. Joel, I always learn something when I listen to Ren Weschler. A little bit of etymology about discretion. Thank you. Um, I think that when we go into the community or into the world at large, we need to be aggressive in some ways to get the thing that we're opening ourselves to. Even if it's an unformed idea, we, we have this need to connect to it and to manifest it in some way. But there's also discretion and uh, light-handedness. One doesn't want to bruise the situation. You don't want to change it too much by being there. It's mm -hmm. one of the, the great skills of the documentarian is to be present but to be invisible somehow. And so I, I know for myself down in Ground Zero, I needed to have discretion so that I wouldn't um, cause an eruption among the forces arrayed down there. I, I didn't want to run in and photograph the bodies and body parts. I didn't want to offend the families of, or the firemen. I needed to be cautious and thoughtful and sensitive, all of my best characteristics. Um, but I also needed to be there and to own my position 
that a self-given position of the you know historian down there. So I think one always is balancing what's necessary and how much you need to push to, to do it. So thoughtfulness and discretion. Yeah. I would just say, to keep it short, it's just, you know, whenever it detracts away from the truth of what you want to do is when you want to, you want to exercise discretion. I mean, like you said, when you want to separate the shit from the food. Uh, so that's what I, you know, that, I can't say that we did that consciously, but when it just didn't fit, you know, and when it, when it inferred too much and it took it away from the center line that you wanted it to be at. <laughs> Without a doubt. I think the, the, the moment that we have the greatest power is not when we're on scene and gathering tape and uh, <clears throat> taking the pictures. It's in our choices. And, uh, and that's where the true trespass can occur and the time we have to be uh, most careful and most honorable because we have ultimate power. Once the stuff is in our digital audio workstation, we can say anything. That's the moment where the tres you know, our trespass, and we're alone in the room at that moment. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, I, I think it was Robert Krulwich who once said, um, one measure is as you make this piece, be looking in the eye of the person about whom that piece is. And when it's played from beginning to end, be able to, uh, be able to look them in the eye. Uh, I've got one other plant here. Uh, another great photographer, Nubar Alexanian, is here. I don't know if you know Nubar. His work is on transom. Right now he interviewed the filmmaker Errol Morris, crossing all sorts of boundaries, a still photographer talking to a filmmaker about the spoken word, which is in some ways what we're doing here tonight. And one thing that uh, today, it's not really night. Seems uh, like <laughs> One of the best things I think about this festival is the way these lines cross and we get to know each other and to know how each other thinks and realize how, how much the same it is and then to imagine what we might all do together. Um, I want to just say one thing about um, September 11th. Um, when I had heard that Joel was, gonna, was working down at, at, at Ground Zero, I was really very, very relieved because I felt like photogra a photographer really needed to be there, but somebody who wasn't just going to go and do a visual dance of their own there, that somebody that was going to not make it about themselves, that was going to make a document that was both worthwhile for all of us, but also represented photographers the way that firemen were represented and police were represented, and I thank you for that. Mm, thanks. It's remarkable. Um, this idea of trespassing, when Jay asked me about it, I thought, you know, when I was younger, there was no idea of trespassing for me. I mean, I worked for magazines, and I was on assignment, and I just wanted to just kick butt with my pictures. I mean, I wanted to come through with just the, the best pictures, get the most pages in the magazine, have people just, you know, I, I was really, really focused on the story, always, always, always. And it wasn't until I got older, I think, that the whole idea of, well, what am I asking people to do for my camera? 
I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a photojournalist, so I don't ever ask people to do anything for my camera. I just photograph them in their lives. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've thought about how I represent people, and that, you know, this whole idea of a concerned photographer is really, for the most part, a false one for me, because I think photographers benefit more than their subjects do. Um, and I'm a good example of that. I spent 15 years photographing in Peru, and it didn't benefit any of the people in my pictures, but it launched my career in a huge way. And I have never been able to really sort of justify that or resolve that, except to say that my pictures in Peru are honest pictures. Um, and I think that's where the line of trespassing for me is. It is what I'm doing honest, um, and that's the best I can do. And just one other quick note. After September 11th, I was asked to photograph uh, the Islamic community of uh, Boston for uh, a magazine. I ran into a really interesting situation. It was very, very touchy because they didn't want to be photographed, and the magazine wanted pictures of sort of stores owned by Muslims and stuff, and I wasn't willing. There was a whole bunch of things right away I was not willing to do. I was not willing to make people targets by making pictures of even their storefronts. Even though it was legal, I could stand on the street and take their... I wouldn't do that. But I needed pictures of women coming out of the mosque, and my contact there said, well, on Friday afternoon, they'll be coming out, and you can do that. And so I photographed this woman and this daughter coming out, and a man came up to me, and he said, you have just photographed my wife and daughter. He said, I know you're, he must have been a lawyer. He said, I, knew, I know you're standing on the sidewalk and it's public, but that's my wife and daughter. And I'm afraid for what might happen. So I did something I never thought I would do. I took the film out of my camera and I gave it to him because I have a wife and daughter myself. Now, before I pat myself on the back, I want you to know that I, there was no other pictures on that roll. <laughs> <laughs> And there were only five exposures. So it wasn't a real test for me. <laughs> but, you know, had there been other pictures on there, I don't know what I would have done. Because my responsibility was I had accepted this assignment. I needed these pictures. There was a problem there. So I guess my question to all of you is, is the line of trespassing migrate for you according to, let's say, whether you're an opposing authority or dealing with individuals, and does it change over time? Maybe you can each think about, them, you know, the question, take it out, leave it in. Because, and sometimes the hardest moments of making a story are around those, and those uh, images or sounds or statements which can change everything. Are there times, how does that line work for you and are there moments when you've really been tested in those ways and whether to, you know, do you talk to somebody and they said something and you know maybe it'll hurt them but it's so vital. Talk about that wrestling match. Uh, I'd say it's more interesting because when we did Ghetto Life 101, which is more expose of me and Lloyd's families, 
you know, my mother talking about her mental illness, my sister talking about murders. I think that in that standpoint, yeah, I wanted to say, you know what, I really don't want my mother put out there like that, nor do I want my family put out there like that. But you have to ask yourself to keep the integrity of the story and what is it going to do for other people in that similar circumstance. And you have to just say, wow, somebody has to be the guinea pig because if nobody, ever, if nobody talks about it, then how do you ever resolve that issue? Yeah. And I think the one thing that I, that I that I had very a lot of difficulties with initially in doing the radio documentaries were the same things that made it very valuable. So does it change? Yes. Do you have to be aware of it? Yes. But do you always have to negate it? No. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I think this this notion of trespassing, as you were saying, it does change. Uh, there you are. Yeah. Uh, um, depending on what you're working on. And, and so for me, it, it, it sort of it denotes this sort of, you know, mark or place that separates us and them. And so I think the whole um, the, the power relationship you were talking about, I think it depends on what you're trying to do with your media. Are you trying to create social change? Are you trying to educate and inform? Are you trying to entertain you know so I think it, it all of those questions come into play and as you were saying how it's really changed over your um, the time that you've been working and I think that's true for all of us you know you get in all these different situations and then that's when you really are developing your own sense of media ethics as you're doing it <laughs> unfortunately that's the way it happens and uh, and then it's very relevant and so I think you know that we can't be complacent in this sense of well, this is how we work and this is what we do. That it's 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 a very complex issue, and, and as Lee Allen said, we just have to be totally cognizant of where we are and what we're doing, and um, and and develop our own sense of media ethics here that we you know put into place in, in certain given moments. So I do think it's 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 uh, dynamic. I guess is what I'm trying to say too. Always. And Joel, I think my. Companions have answered it well enough. I don't use it all the time. Uh, uh, I want to take Robert's question. Uh, I, I don't know if Scott Carrier is here. When I think of trespass, I often think of uh, Scott Carrier. He's always trespassing. All his pieces, he's put. He's up in somebody's tree or he's camping in their backyard. or uh, And then they come to talk to him about it, and the piece is based around the idea that he's appeared in their lives, and then they have to uh, sort it out. I'd love to have his thoughts if he's here. We'll, we'll go to, uh, I think you've been standing here longer, right? And, yeah. um, I kind of want to address the question of, of reverse trespassing. You know, in, I've gotten to sticky situations where um, my own mental and emotional well-being is at stake in working on a piece. And when you're working with someone who is so, so eager to be listened to, um, when they see you as more than just a documentarian and especially when they document documentary means nothing to them it's not it's not part of their uh, repertoire of, of it, it just doesn't have a, a place in their daily lives and so when you come in and you're interested in them and you start working with them you become friend you become counselor you become many, many things to them. How do you disengage uh, emotionally, physically? I don't know. Joel, you want to start why since you, you... Why do you need to disengage? I mean, it's a life experience. You're enriched by the complexity of this, <clears throat> by the unexpected quality of it. Uh, 
you know, I, I wasn't inserting myself in the lives of the people that I, I mean, in the larger scope, yes, but in the individuals who were down there by the, a thousand of them, let's say, I wasn't doing that personally, but yet every day I would see the same people or I would eat lunch with them or, you know, cross paths, and people began to tell me their stories. Oh, if I only had a tape recorder, the things I heard, but it was a gift. I, I took it as... Um, our mutual exchange, um, a way of, of educating myself to, you know, the, the human variables. Uh, um, I didn't want to disengage. I wanted to weep with them, and I wanted to go home and pass those stories along. And I, it just felt like it was um, filling me up. I guess I like the experience to do that. That's good. I, uh, maybe I want to get to some of these questions, so we'll each take a shot at some of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Mistress Johanna's given us an extra five minutes. Yeah. I was wondering about just being scared. I was wondering, have any of the three of you done something where in the very moment you were scared for your physical safety, or scared for your psyche, or, and B, was there also ever a moment where you wanted to get a picture or a sound or some kind of thing so badly and you were the only one who knew that if you didn't get it, your story might fall apart or your story might not be as good. And in that moment, what did you do? I can't say I was ever in a situation like that. Uh, I mean, I was young. I mean, I was only, what, 14, 15, 16 when I was doing it. So scared at that point in your life is really not a thing that you think of. Had I, think, had I thought about it now, trying to do it, maybe so. But then, you know, you'd run through a brick wall at 13, 14. Well, um, you know, I work with this nonprofit uh, media center called Apple Shop, and, and um, since the war on poverty, um, we've really been, you know, we've been doing a lot of films around uh, a lot of different issues. And so, you know, it, we, we're not immune from this same sort of, um, um, you know, attack uh, uh, with cameras and tape recorders. And so, um, yeah, we had a crew attack. They were on a strip mining site with the owner of the land, but the um, the company who had the right to get to the mineral underneath the surface um, was attacked. And so they were very scared, and and they just stood their ground, sort of. That um, you know what Joel's saying that you know they had a right to be here. They were with the property owner, and. And, and, you know, so there, there's many instances of, of having guns pulled on people. Um, people are pretty quick to go to a gun in eastern Kentucky. And um, so I think we've been very lucky, actually. Um, and I think the difference is, um, you know, that as you were saying, like we're, we're engaged and we have a certain stake in, in, in being there. We're from there, too. It's our home. It's our property, you know. So... So I think a lot of we're able to mediate some of that um, with this kind of extended kin and family and, um, and history there. I have to make a public confession, Robert. Uh, I was really scared one time in particular. It was the day that I snuck you and your whole crew into the site with those four fake passes. And I thought, <laughs> if I'm caught with this television crew, which was really off limits, and they see forged passes, I could go to jail. But uh, I did it anyway. <laughs> because I thought it was necessary that the outside world see some of 
what was going on down there, and I just took it on my own authority that I would I would bring in someone I trusted. I, I have a, it's not exactly scared, but this moment, say I, I, if I've done a piece on street gangs, and I'm out with street gangs, and I, then I start to think, well, what if I got shot? And then I think, that would be a really good ending. <laughs> so I'm scared of myself. Hi. I come from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, so your film was very important for us because the whole idea of coming from somewhere else into another community. Right. I'm a journalist. And in Canada, we have the, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Right in our journalist, journalistic policy handbook, you will not trespass. That, that's how loaded this word is. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea of how do I, for example, I was sent to New York City after September 11th, it's your community. I, I see the relationship of the United States to the rest of the world very differently as a Canadian than you do. So when I was on site and trying to talk to Americans, they would turn to me and say, you don't understand. This is our community. So I'm a journalist. How do I figure... I, I can't make up my own uh, idea of what trespass trespassing is. I'm, as a journalist, according to my policy handbook, not allowed. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a real struggle when I come from outside, if I am sent to Afghanistan, I, I do not speak that language. How do I get inside somewhere and not become an advocate? Because they may be wrong. The people who let me into their community may be wrong. The murder, I mean, the, the, the wonderful Janet Malcolm uh, stories in, in the New Yorker magazine. If I want that story, I have to create some kind of bond with that person mm -hmm. to get the truth from them, from their point of view. But mm -hmm. I'm a journalist, too. They may be wrong. How can I trespass into their community and yet still not fall into, call it the Stockholm Syndrome, become an advocate for their cause and so on? It's a real struggle. It's, it's, you're, you're lucky if you're able to make your own journalistic ethics because I have to work with a, a company that has rules. Yeah, okay. I'll take it. Yeah, no, I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know who might want to go Well, next. maybe we can get some more questions. We've just got a few more minutes. We'll go back Here's over here. Here's another one you can't respond to. Um, um, first of all, thank e I thank you, each of you for your work. It's made us all richer um, today and, and all the years you've been doing it. Um, there's been a lot of talk of obsession at this conference, and I think it's a luxury for us to be obsessed with um, the things we trip over. But I wonder what happens uh, for you when your obsession is not a death or a catastrophe and you find somebody's simple story obsesses you. How do you know it's important enough to photograph or record in some way? How do you know it's, um, I mean, I know, my gut tells me there's something about this man that obsesses me, and I want to tell his story, but you know, how do you know it's the right one? Well, you answered your own question. I mean, we have intuition, this mysterious divining rod that guides us. And if you don't listen to your intuition, then your obsession dis dissipates. So I'm just like you. I, I felt strongly about something. I just found a way to do it. And I imagine it's true for everybody who goes forward with a commitment. I mean, like you said, I think that there's, there's no way. Everything is definable in life, I think. So therefore, 
he might not be necessarily interested in me, but if it's interesting to you, then then you do it for you, and then you allow others to benefit from that. But to sit there and say, well, I'm interested, I don't think anybody else is, I mean, that's, you know, how, what would get done in life if we all thought like that? I mean, you know, we'd probably still be, you know, burning, making stick fires as opposed to having a lighter. So, I mean, because if it's not important to me, it's got to be important to somebody else. So, I mean, we, we, have to def we have to define our own things to make us who we are and go from there. Nobody else likes it. Nobody else likes it. Yeah. Obsession is power. Uh, we got two people. Uh, who's been waiting longer? Beyond. I just have a really short thing. Okay. There's been a great um, context of purpose and morality and responsibility and so forth portrayed here. Uh, Janet Malcolm wrote another piece in The New Yorker uh, asserting that journalists were seducers and betrayers, that they invited people to tell them their stories as sort of fake psychiatrists and then exploited them by printing it. Did any of you ever think about that dark side of journalism? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, come out here today of, of this sense that, um, you know, that your career was built on um, certain images of a certain culture certain and a certain time and a certain place that, um, uh, you know, that was the benefit. And so I think, you know, all of us are, are very aware of that, of what is this exchange, because the, the power relationship is... Um, it's very definitely on our side with this kind of equipment and this kind of access to money that it takes to make a film or that it takes to do this long-term work of documentary work that that we have this power of cash to do this and um, and these tools of production and that what that the image is it's um, very strong and it's very long-lasting and so um, you know, I, I haven't read the article you described, but I, I do think that, that you know, more and more of us are getting more and more cynical about journalists and what we read and what we see. And it, it's, um, you know, it's really a terrible time to be a journalist in a lot of ways. Um, it's, um, you know, I think the kind of trade-offs of, of people having very short time to write these stories, I think the demand, the budget demands, the time constraints, I think the sort of... Um, uh, at least in print media, the sort of uh, consolidation of ownership that you don't have community papers. You have reporters there who don't know anything about the community. You have editors that um, that their their responsibility is to the bottom line and sort of a profitable paper, and it's not really to the readers. So it's not a kind of civic journalism anymore. And um, so I think that that's. You know, what she's describing is, is part of this larger picture. My penance uh, is, if, if I haven't told the story well, I, I work very hard to put the tools out there so people can tell their own or pick them up or learn. And, and if they don't like the way I did it, then you do it. Yeah, we have about yeah. one minute left, I think. Okay, I'll try and be very short. Okay. I want to thank all of you, though, for a fantastic session today. It's really thank great, you. very enriching. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by the notion of trespassing. I live in Germany, which is a country obsessed with rules. And in Berlin, people have no qualms about coming up and telling you on the street that what you're not allowed to do, like walk your bicycle in a certain place or keep your dog in another part of town or whatever. So I find this very intriguing, and I would like to float the very subs subversive notion of permission. I haven't heard that word mentioned yet today. 
I think there's a really important distinction between taking a picture of somebody on the streets without, without asking if it's okay and then someone coming up and saying, hey, that's my wife and daughter, and entering a very sanctified ambiance with your interview partner, knowing full well that you have permission to do an interview and to ask very probing questions. To me, that's not trespassing. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's elemental, but I think we shouldn't forget that permission is why we all do what we do. And our Canadian colleague, um, I work for CBC also, and it's a company for which I have immense respect. So those rules are there, I think, for a very good reason. I think trespassing happens when journalists get the story wrong. They've gained permission of entry, and then they either screw up the quote or they, they get the facts wrong or they bring something out of context. So, thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. I want to thank this panel. It's been really terrific. And thank you very much.